We may be confident that the great American poem will not be written, no matter what genius attempts it, until democracy, the idea of our day, and nation, and race, has agonized and conquered through centuries, and made its work secure. But the great American novel, the picture of the ordinary emotions and manners of American existence, the American newcomes, or miserables, will, we suppose, be possible earlier. So begins John William DeForest's 1868 article for The Nation, entitled The Great American Novel. Since then, we've bestowed the title of The Great American Novel to numerous books, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Moby Dick, and The Scarlet Letter, just to name a few. And it seems every generation ponders which book will be the next great American novel, and many authors aspire to pen it. But why, as one New York Times column asks, are we so obsessed with the great American novel? Here to explore our national obsession with the great American novel over Skype is John Howell. John is the Associate Dean of Students and a lecturer in American Religions, Literature, and Visual Culture at the University of Chicago Divinity School. He received his PhD from the same institution with a dissertation entitled Civil War Literature and the Prospect of America. So needless to say, John enjoys talking about American religion and literature. So welcome to Holy Media. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Well, I mean, first off, kind of, is there such a thing as the great American novel or novels? And if so, I mean, can we consider them the books of the American Literary Bible? I'll be curious to hear what you think, but I think I would start by saying that it depends a lot on who you ask. I mean, clearly there is a long-standing discussion in American literary criticism about this notion of the great American novel and whether there is or could be a single work that is somehow um, representative of the nation in a way that is capacious and live. Um, but, you know, it's, the category is complex, as you know, and um, it goes back and forth between being a single work or a set of works or something we might call a canon. Um, and I think it really depends. Do, do you, what do you think? I mean, <laughs> I think I think it's difficult to to kind of narrow it down to a specific set of books simply also because how do you define a singular novel or collection of novels when works are constantly being produced um, I mean I think it's also interesting too because with every story it's only telling one aspect of a culture. And I think and I think that's the interesting aspect of trying to figure out if there is such a thing as a novel or a set of novels is what kind of story about the United States are those collection of books telling. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think um you know, one of the the sort of off and on things that's noted whenever people talk about this thing called the great American novel right is is that any novel that is the great American novel is going to be specific to its time and might sort of speak mm -hmm. to the nation or speak the nation um, in a particular historical moment. The idea that somehow 
um, <laughs> some some particular work of a fiction, or if that's what we want to limit the, the definition of the novel to, could speak for all of America historically and prospectively. I think that gets complicated. Well, and it's also interesting, too, about how people construct the canon of the great American novel, of like what counts as a great American novel and what doesn't. And I mean, I think in most of the, most of the lists that I've seen, Uncle Tom's Cabin seems to be the one that actually crosses all the lists. Whereas there are other books that appear on some, but not on others. And I think that's interesting that a text that's wrestling with what has been called like the greatest American sin of slavery is the one book that's across all lists of the great American novel. No, I think that's right. I mean, um, I mean, the only other book that comes close to having that kind of sort of uh, purchase across you know, these kinds of lists that people uh, stipulate is something like uh, Melville's Moby Dick, I think, mm-hmm. is, is probably the closest thing to that. Um, but yeah, Stowe's is it's an interesting case, right? Because it is you know, heavily polemical um, and it is uh, derogated in some discussions of literature precisely because it's a sentimental novel or has you know, participates in the conventions of the sentimental novel in a lot of ways. And so um, I think though that you're right that because it, it becomes um, you know, this you know, source of um, lore, American lore, so you know, the famously uh, Stowe was introduced as the little lady or she was greeted by Abraham Lincoln as you know the little lady who started this big war. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that that anytime you get get apocryphal stories about you know the an author and a text that sort of begin to surround the text, then that 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 seems to be something that um, qualifies a text for for entry into the annals of great American novel history. So, you know, speaking about like apocryphal stories and how they get tied into text and. You know, because I just also framed Uncle Tom's Cabin as discussing a, a, a national sin. How can we can we even understand literature as sacred texts or scriptures for a nation? Yeah, I think it gets complicated because then you get into these weird definitional questions, right? Like, um, can you have sacred texts absent a tradition for which they are sacred texts? Mm-hmm. Um can can you define the nation in a way um, that that sort of constructs the nation as something that could have a religious tradition, um, and if so, then what what counts in the category of sacred text or sacred literature um, for that tradition and for that nation? And those are all complicated questions for which there have been tons and tons of answers in various you know, registers. But um, yeah, I, I tend to think so. I mean, I, I'm. Um, <laughs> As you said, I, you know, I, I think a lot about religion and literature in the American context, but I also think about American religious history and um, sociological concepts that, that sort of animate that discourse. And so um, I tend to think that descriptively we can speak of, of an American national religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if whether we like that or not, um, and that's a, that's a different question, I think, but descriptively, I think that you could say, but there is a kind of um, something like Americanness that functions as a religious tradition um, for which we might list certain kinds of texts as sacred to it. Um, and so then the question becomes, do we like that? And if so, what do we do about it? And if we do like it and we, we decide that we want to participate in this game of electing texts, 
um, for inclusion, then it becomes a question of settling the canon. But I, I think, though, and as you know, I agree with you about uh, the idea of an American uh, national religion. But I, I think it's interesting, though, of from a sociological standpoint and from an American religious history standpoint, then, of how that has already defined the canon. Because we have these texts that we've kind of held up as the quintessential descriptors of certain periods of time in American history, just in the same vein as we could argue we hold up the Founding Fathers as the saints of America. And so I guess in that, in that sense, isn't the canon already defined? I mean... There, you know, although yes, we have Moby Dick and we have Uncle Tom's Cabin that tend to cross all of these different lists, but then I mean, we have authors, um, you know, who have compiled and created the great, like the classic works of American literature. We have everything that we have to read in grade school and in high school, um, the AP lit, you know, the AP lit exams. I mean, isn't, isn't there already a canon established? Well, maybe. Um, I mean, I think I would, I would go back and say that um, there's potentially already a canon established in terms of um, juridical or, or legal or legislative documentation or speeches, particularly speeches of presidents and other kinds of public figures, and that those things sort of might potentially automatically fall within the canon or at least the history of something we might call an American religion. Um, but, but it gets back to your original question, which is, can literature participate in that? And I think that, mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 the notation of AP English classes is interesting, right? Just because um, it, colleges, universities, high schools, um, secondary, I mean, you know, pre-secondary schools become um, institutions of this hypothetical American religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if that's true, then the things that they are teaching become canonical in some some way and so you could construe then curricular standards and discussions about curricular standards as being um, a kind of process of canon formation which becomes interesting too and so in that case yeah I mean I think I I would I would accede to your point. (laughs) So why don't we take a look at um, an example that we've both read and that was actually a book in the canon of the class that uh, you co-taught and that I was a student in. Um, so why don't we look at Little Women as an example of a book that is within and without this kind of um, educational canon of American literature. Oh, that's a, that sounds like a good plan. Um, <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let you take it off because you, you've <laughs> been doing a lot of work with the, the text lately. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you a question just based on the, on the fact of the class that you mentioned. So maybe it's worth saying that um, this was a class that uh, Richard Rosengarten and I co-taught, uh, and of which you were a citizen, and, and we had a really nice conversation. I think throughout a term where we were looking at a set of texts that that the hypothesis of the class right is that they narrate the nation, or at least seek to narrate the nation in some mm-hmm. meaningful way, and so they they seem germane for this kind of conversation. But uh, I'd be curious to hear your riff on, on, on Little Women, having been a citizen of the class, um, and, and whether you thought that was a compelling inclusion or whether you thought it was strange or out of place. 
I was, every other book and every other text, because we also looked at movies, um, that was on there made sense to me. And then Little Women kind of just seemed, you know, out of nowhere. I was like, okay, well, I guess, yeah, it's a, it's an American classic, but I don't really understand, you know, before we got into the class, I was like, I don't really understand how it relates to the narration of America, um, and particularly with regards to this concept of a hypothetical American um, religion, which, as listeners of the show know, is the focus of all of my research. So, I mean, I... And then when, you know, I had read excerpts of it before as a child growing up. I mean, I think, I think it, I think it's very difficult, um, for any, for anyone who grew up kind of as an active child, especially as a girl, to not ever read a story about Joe, um, and not want to connect with Joe on that kind of, like, literary childhood growing up level. Um... But I don't, I still, I still struggle with trying to figure out actually where it fits into this narration because, and perhaps it's just because of all of the knowledge I had about the text before going into the class of, to me, it's just very gendered. And as much as, you know, yes, all the other books like Scarlet Letter and Moby Dick and Uncle Tom's Cabin are gendered too. I think this, I think what I'm trying to get at is because it's such a, this, I, I feel so, this is like, my inner feminist is like cringing with, with what I'm about to say, <laughs> is that it's just so feminine that it's hard for me to understand how it fits in to the narration of America, which then reveals a whole line of questioning about, well, why is that a problem in the narration of America, and why are masculine books what define the narration of America? But well, that's I mean, where I'm at. <laughs> let me let me try to help. Um, I mean, one way to to sort of to try to cordon off uh, Little Women and say it's not part of this discussion, right, would be to, to defer to the the tastes uh, of the literateurs or the the literary aristocracy of the time. So um, certainly, you know. The, the narration of the nation, in whether in literary or political terms or whatever, uh, up until pretty recently has been the domain of, of white men, um, mm-hmm. predominantly Protestant Christian men, and many of them ministers. Um, and so Little Women doesn't really you know, work in that way. Um, so you could say that historically it makes a kind of sense that it would be an odd, odd sort of artifact in this canon Mm-hmm. Um, simply because of the social location of its author, um, of it, despite the fact that you know she was part of the intelligentsia very much in this, in conversation with you know um, the movers and shakers of the day, mm-hmm. um, but you know she's a different social location that's not typically seen as being a driver of American the American saga, let's say, um, and. The, the sort of implied reader of the text, I think, is typically construed as, as a quote-unquote juvenile female. It's sort of juvenile fiction. Yeah. Um, and so um, in, in as much as it implies that kind of reader, then you could also say that it's too limited and it's too limited in a way that's out of step with the, the typical workings of power at the time. Um, for me, the reason, I mean, this is like looking back at our conversation so far. I mean, there, the, here, here, here are my arguments, my points for 
for why Little Women is the 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 attempt to narrate the nation. So on the one hand, um, we've talked about the great American novel, and the you know it, it, I think the general consensus is that even while John William DeForest did not coin that phrase necessarily, he is its um, preeminent popularizer. Right, he's, uh-huh. he's the one who sort of entered it into the discussion in a formal way by way of a, an editorial in the nation. Um, and what gets lost, I think, in, in some of the readings of DeForest is the extent to which he's very much thinking about the great American novel as an artifact that will heal the nation, even though he doesn't say that specifically. Um, so, but, but it, nevertheless, um, the great American novel is something that will heal the nation and specifically in the wake of the American Civil War. Um, and Little Women tries to do that, I would argue. It, it, um, it is very much a novel about the Civil War, despite the fact that its action is all centralized in the March household, yeah. um, and, you know, at the hearth, so to speak. Um, and so that's, that's point one. Um, two, I, the gender thing gets complicated, but I, I, am, I tend to think that um, the domain of the term Little Women um, actually includes men as well, and that part of the project of the novel is to incorporate even men into this category of little women, which functions both as a description of, of the, the main characters and their age, um, but it also functions as this kind of ideal whereby um, you know, um, Meg, Joe, uh, Beth, and Amy try to um, become ideal citizens of the polis or, or the public in a certain uh-huh. way. Um, by way of conquering their their mortal uh, foes, who are all, which are all internal to their persons, the, the kind of struggles with which they um, that they that they try to battle on a day day in day out basis, um, and so their work of moral perfection is very much um, for me a kind of uh, metonymy for the nation's own um, work of moral rectitude or, or um, its effort to conquer what what you've called. Uh, um, um, the the animosity and partisanship that results from a war that was about conquering America's mm-hmm. original sin. So you have that going there as well. But the most interesting thing, perhaps, is that it explicitly engages um, the New Testament, um, specifically the Gospels. Um, there's a, a, a critical argument about this, but um, so on the Christmas morning that opens the novel, they, re- they each receive a differently colored um, volume under their pillows um, from Marmy who's given them a text and it doesn't ever say what that text is and some people speculate that it's a copy of uh, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress and in part because that's one of the major intertextual reference in the novel Um, but I I tend to think that it's the New Testament um, and and so you have this sort of the Bible and scripture plays you know plays a role in the narration of the novel and it's explicitly aligned with the moral development uh, of the main characters. Um, the other thing is something you said, which is you said uh, <laughs> you said you know Little Women is a, is a text that you weren't sure you'd ever read all the way through prior yeah. to you know, having someone <laughs> tell you you had to um, as part of a class. Um, but instead, it's a text that you sort of dipped in and out of and knew certain stories from or had seen particular episodes dramatized, let's say. Um, or seen versions of, of it produced as films. Um, and there's a certain way in which it functions then like, uh, you know, like the Bible, or you know, if we can think of the Bible as a, as a readily identifiable thing in the world, 
Um, but you know, people dip in and out of the Bible to look at particular um, texts or episodes or, or, or passages, um, just depending on the needs of the moment or, or, or what how they're engaging it. It's very similar yeah. to um, an approach to Little Women, where you don't read it all the way through, but you um, you go in and you look at the castles in the air chapter or something. <laughs> Did I miss the skyscrapers? Did I miss the long freeway? I think it's also interesting too of um you know as you pointed out a lot of these a lot of the books that we've been talking about and even the films that we we examined in the class are all centered around the civil war and i mean uh to bring in um harry stout's argument that you know the civil war was the the solidification slash origin point of a national religion for the united states that is the foundation of a unified national patriotism and and how therefore like the civil war does operate as the foundation of american identity and so book texts dealing with that time period are crucial then to narrating the united states and also how you know i i've I've been thinking about this just briefly, but about how it was an imperative for the United States to develop its own kind of um, literary style and literary genre as a further way of establishing independence from the UK. Because, yeah. I mean, British literature is such, like, you know, you can't go through an English class without engaging with British literature in some way. And so for the United States... It, American literature is can be you know along the same lines as the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, which are often held up as you know American scripture because there are founding texts, but it's an extension of American independence is American literature and how that then plays back into the idea of of text and that we hold to be sacred in this country. No, I think that's right. I think that, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, uh, the post-Civil War um, observers, I mean, one of the reasons they're so anxious about, um, uh, you know, the great American novel or the great work of national literature or something like this is, is precisely for this reason, that they, they think that the nation will become a nation fully um, when it can point to texts that um, that function in the way that that John William DeForest imagines the great American novel might, or that Walt Whitman, you know, for example, um, he thinks that there will be a, a, you know a, a national literature that will um, signalize these states. He says is, is the way mm -hmm. he puts it, um, and so that's certainly true. Like a lot of the anxiety about it is 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 based on this notion that somehow literature is directly related to nationness um, mm -hmm. or, or nationality. Um, and you see this all the time. I mean, Frantz Fanon, right, says that, that um, um, the development of cultural, uh, a cultural, you know, base is, is a kind of final step in nation building. Um, and that he's just, you know, one of many, many people saying that, that sort of thing. Um, I think it's, 
two things to say about that. One is that um, it's not a conversation that begins at the Civil War. There is a, a sort of long history of worrying about a national literature um, that predates the Civil War specifically, but I think that because the Civil War poses such a threat to um, the ideal of the American nation as this unified or magically unified entity, um, that it becomes this, this touchstone for the conversation. Um, the other thing to say is that it's, it's directly in response to, <laughs> to British cultural critics who are saying that, you know, America you know, is an interesting experiment and all, um, and it's been great, but it hasn't produced a national literature. And so we, yeah. can we really say that it's a nation here that I think, I mean, one of the, the, the big people are, who looms large in this is uh, Matthew Arnold and specifically his text, Culture and Anarchy. Which I think, I mean, then kind of along that lines, if we, if we take the argument that a, a national literature does, is important to forming a national identity and the concept of a nation, that then we're just, we're, we're working with the assumption that literature is a, a nation scripture in a way. So let's, I, I'm very, I'm still really interested as to <laughs> what gets counted as part of this literature canon that describes what the na American nation is sure. and who is and isn't within that concept of a nation not to dive into all of my beloved research. But, <laughs> but but seriously, I mean like for instance, if we could we can return to Little Women of because of its its marketability to a very adolescent teenage girl audience, it's introducing in a way women into the canon. Despite the fact that we have, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is also a female author um but that we are having women represented in a positive light unlike in the scarlet letter um so you know who's america whose nation is the canon really describing yeah i mean one of the the, the things that comes into this is a question between or, or sort of a question about what qualifies a text for inclusion and what's interesting about this, right, is that so um, Little Women is was an immensely popular text. It sold incredibly well, um, and it was only the latest in a long line of, of best-selling novels um, by American women. So um, in the Antebellum period, you have Susan Warner, The Wide Wide World, um, which is a huge bestseller. Immediately after the Civil War, you also have Elizabeth Stewart Phelps' The Gates Ajar, uh, which is massively popular and a huge bestseller and inaugurates all these bereavement memes and things like this. And you have Little Women, which is also an incredibly good seller, as well as Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, and yet Stowe's is the only, so Uncle Tom's Cabin is really the only one in that trajectory that's readily included. And I wager that that's a relatively recent development um, in terms huh. of the discussion. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, you have Herman Melville's Moby Dick, which is, you know, with, so it's, you know, the other one, it's, it's the opposite to Stowe, right? They, they both have, have this widespread purchase on these kinds of um, exercises in canon building or canon citation. Um, and it, when it was introduced, it was a dismal failure. And it wasn't until the early 20th century and the advent of the Melville revival that anyone even read Moby Dick 
Um, uh, it just was not at all popular. And so on the one hand, you could argue that there's something about Moby Dick that makes it you know, classic in a way that was you know, ahead of its time and couldn't be appreciated at the time. Um, but you could also say something like um, the there's something to be said for the fact of sales numbers um, in terms of its animating the minds of an American reading public. Uh, mm -hmm. DeForest, for example, to go back to the great American novel, thought that um, that one of the marks or one of the hallmarks of the great American novel is that it would be a bestseller because the American people would see themselves in it and see their story described. And so can you make an arb can you make the claim that Moby Dick um, is that kind of mirror if no one reads it for the first 50 years of its existence? Um, whereas That's, Little Women yeah. is hugely popular. It's, I just think it's interesting because if, you know, thinking about like, well, what works are being produced today that will eventually be considered part of the American canon? And how much of that is due to the fact that it is forcing us to wrestle with even if it's unconsciously because we're escaping into this fictional, fictionalized experience, you know, I'm thinking about the episode from last month about horror films and how horror films are, even if you're not conscious of it at the time, making you go through this experience of confronting that which you don't know and you're afraid of. Um, how much of works that are being produced today are accomplishing that? Um, I mean, for instance, we can bring in, although, you know, he wasn't born in the United States, Marlon James's um, book, uh, History of Seven Killings. And although that doesn't take place in the United States, how much of it is a discussion around race broadly and influenced by his time living here? Um, or, you know, for instance, Maya Angelou, you brought up Toni Morrison, and I think this just goes back to the conversation of who gets to decide who is and isn't in this narration yeah. of America, yeah. and whose story is being told. Because, I mean, Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou, critical, you know, critical authors to read, in my opinion, but are they part, are they widely considered, because I, I would think you and I may agree on where they should and shouldn't be in the canon, but, um, you know, are they widely considered to be representational works of the narration of the country? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, you're right. I'm, I'm squarely in the camp of Toni Morrison is in, in the canon of American literature and the narration of the nation state or the nation. Um, mm -hmm. it's interesting. I was thinking, as you were talking about sort of, well, what do I go back to most often and read? And Beloved is actually a novel I go back and read um, yeah. with some frequency, which is maybe strange because it's a very difficult novel to read just because it's so um, um, convicting and so brutal. Um, it's so hard, but it nevertheless is telling the story um, of America in a way that is right on par with the, the other novels we've spoken about that are treating the Civil War, let's say, um, 
but giving but giving it from a perspective that's not usually rendered in in a mm-hmm. real way um and so i don't know maybe it goes to a you know maybe what's canonical is the episode and then classic statements about the episode and so you could say the civil war and slavery is, is a canonical episode and there's literature within that treats that you know epic or period or episode or you know trauma um sin um, all you all words we've used um and it's a question of which ones rise to sort of crystallizing it in a classic way mm-hmm I just keep thinking back to something that we we touched upon at the beginning of the conversation but didn't really dive into, but how much of this hypothetical American religion is informed by race and informed by socioeconomics and informed by even certain interpretations of Christianity yeah. and how that then influences the place of certain texts in what I am now taking as an assumption, the scripture of America. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, hugely influential, right? Because you don't start to see um, the acclamation of female, um, um, ethnically and racially other you know, peoples, mm-hmm. at least in terms of both novelists and, um, and sort of subjects or objects of representation. That makes it sound, that sounds terrible, but... Um, you know, <laughs> people whose stories are worth telling, even if, if yes. the teller is not necessarily of the same social location, um, that really happens, right? Um, you know, in in the culture wars in the 1960s, um, and you have this expansion of the canon. Um, you have this investment in critical theory and looking at texts for reasons other than they satisfy the, uh, you know, self, the imagined self representation of of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male. Um, who is, is the sort of paradigm of the American. Actually, talking about what belongs in the canon and what doesn't, Stephen Prothero has a book called The American Bible. Um, and what is really interesting is instead of just, you know, listing texts and explaining why they should and shouldn't be in the quote-unquote American Bible. He actually, and I'll show you this real quick, I don't know if you've ever seen this, um, the co- the book is actually laid out like the Bible, mm-hmm. and the different texts are denoted under different biblical books. So, for instance, in um, Genesis, we have John Winthrop's The Model of Christian Charity, which, for those who don't know, um, is the the American origin of the use of a city upon a hill, which actually is in the Bible in the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> um, and includes the Declaration of Independence. Um, MLK's letter from a Birmingham from Birmingham jail is in the Epistles, um, and you know, obviously enough to some of us uh, in the Proverbs is Benjamin a lot of Benjamin Franklin about. Remember that time is money, and God helps those who help themselves, really getting into kind of the work ethic behind um, what it means to be an American, and that the Psalms include the star Sangled Banner and God Bless America. But, I, I mean, this is only one example of, and one interpretation of what belongs in the 
and constitutes the narration of America. I know you you are more familiar with another one. Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that, that we had talked about doing in the run-up to, to today um, was to look at a bunch of lists uh, of, of the canon of American mm-hmm. classics or what could be potentially construed as the scriptures of America. Um, Prothero's text is certainly one of them, and he's using it in a very heavy-handed way, right? That you have yes. all of these <laughs> genres of biblical literature and the classification of particular kinds of American texts in relationship to these generic categories. But other ones, so um, someone I read a lot is Andrew Del Banco. Um, my favorite text of his is, is The Death of Satan, and it's about um, sort of how Americans have lost the sense of evil. I have, I have you know, quibbles with the text, but he has another text called Required Reading, and I mean, just to run through the list of folks that are, that appear in that, you have Herman Melville, and it's, one of the interesting things about this book is that in some some cases, um, he's talking specifically about a work that a particular author has written, and in some cases, it's more about the, the, the sort of oeuvre of the of the of the author. For Melville, it's an oeuvre thing, as it is for Henry David Thoreau, Abraham Lincoln. Um, Edith Wharton and Zora Neale Hurston, but then you have very specific treatments of, for example, Harriet Beecher Stowe's uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Henry Adams and the Education of Henry Adams, Stephen Crane's uh-huh. The Red Badge of Courage, Kate Chopin's The Awakening, Theodore Dreiser, um, which is you know more capacious, but he deals especially with an American tragedy, and Richard Wright's Native Son. And what's interesting, right, is you have you know some of the folks who appear on a lot of these lists, like Stowe, Link, Abraham Lincoln, Melville. Thoreau's yeah. not someone we've talked about, but he also sort of figures into these conversations all the time, and he appears in Prothero's text as well. Um, but then you have someone like Richard Wright, a native son, or Zora Neale Hurston, um, who you know aren't as often mentioned in these conversations, and, and perhaps should be. Um, it, one of the things to say about Del Banco's tech, right, is that it's a collection of uh, articles that he'd written for, especially the New Republic, and so you know, were he pressed to um, you know, enumerate all of the texts that he thinks should appear in, in the canon. It would probably be, you know, vastly uh, more capacious than this. Uh-huh. Um, but nevertheless, it you know, there are choices that were made in terms of which which authors and texts to feature and choose. Um, you know, the class that that we've been talking about that you and I were in together, me as as a co-instructor, um, had a canon, right? So you have Hawthorne, Melville, uh, Stowe, Alcott. D.W. Griffith, uh, John Ford, and and, and uh, Steven Spielberg, and also um, Tony Kushner. Um, th- we looked together at a PBS list, right, which was yes, a little more yeah. interesting, actually, because the text that I don't even know personally, but Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, which I think is you know, certainly in this conversation. Yeah. But then you have things like Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior and Chinaman, um, or Juno Diaz's The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Um, mm-hmm. So there are things, uh, you know, lists like this that are, um, that sort of don't beat the standard rhythm of the American canon, but sometimes you wonder if, if part of the point of a list like that is to, uh, or when, when people are thinking about contributing to a list like that, when they're asked to elect a great American novel, either singularly or multiply, is, is whether they're sort of thinking about that with an eye to representation and our of explicitly going at texts that, that sort of are non-standard or not obvious. Well, I think the other thing, too, with the PBS list is it's uh, more contemporary. Yeah. I mean, it, it's including texts from the 1980s, um, in, you know, with like Tomika Kincaid. 
Yeah, Thomas Pynchon's entire catalog. Mm-hmm. And and I think and, and so I think for instance the PBS list is is far more expansive than some of the other ones that we've been talking about. Um, another list that we didn't uh, you know explicitly talk about previously, but is from another class that I took um, at Chicago, is uh, Conrad Cherry's entire um, edited volume God's New Israel. I feel, I, you know, although he's not explicitly saying that this is an American canon of literature or text, he's definitely hinting at that. Um, and to, to finally name what we've been talking about, because um, he, he's doing it really within the eye of uh, civil religion yeah. and what texts are explaining our national identity and even, you know, and I really actually appreciate the way that he divides the book, and it's it's definitely it's chronological, but you know he's he's looking at revolution, he's looking at manifest destiny, he's looking at the civil war, and then even in the contemporary period of, you know the, you know our spending on war, our spending on industrialization, our our concept of trade, and and I it, that even comes into. Contemporary issues of like you know fair trade agreements and things like that, and so I, I I that's really what I feel is at the heart of this entire episode is how much in in referring to American texts and American literature and specifically the American novel as sacred and scripture are there aspects um, of this idea of civil religion that are not purely governmental. Because I feel like so often when we talk about civil religion, it's with, it's with an eye to what I view as the superficial aspects of it, of the government, the Declaration of Independence, the Lincoln Memorial, the National Mall, the Capitol Building, the Statue of Liberty. You know, all these symbols that really speak more towards the government of the country rather than the people of the country. Yeah, there's so many things to say here. I mean, I think one of them is that... Um, you know, now that we've named the, the, the elephant in the room, American civil religion, you know, it's important to name Robert Bella's, you know, article on the subject from Daedalus um, in the 60s. and Which I would say was actually part of the course canon that we participated <laughs> in. <laughs> uh, fair enough. I, 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 I take the point. Um, the, so, you know, Bella organizes the American civil religion into what he calls times of trial, right? The revolution, mm-hmm. you have the civil war. And then you have um, you know, Vietnam and the culture wars basically yes. as being the most recent quote unquote time of trial and like more recent expositors of this notion of the American civil religion have described 9-11 as a fourth time of trial and especially sort of thinking about the relationship of the United States um, to uh, the Middle East and especially Islam um, and especially radical Islam or, 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 or bastardized Islam, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. And so you, so that's, you know, all of these texts that we're talking about come from these moments, right? These signal moments in, in Bella's implotment of the civil religion. And he does name texts, and some of them are ones that appear in, in Prothero's um, you know, catalog, for example. Like, you know, yeah. you have um, City on a Hill, you have uh, Declaration of Independence, you have Lincoln's Second Inaugural, you have the Gettysburg Address, uh, you have um, a letter from a Birmingham jail. These are things that Bella has an eye to. Um, but you don't have literature in quite the same way. But one of the big critics of, of the civil religion thesis, who's also a Chicago person, Martin Marty, 
you know, famously said the great no, the great theologians of the the late nineteenth century were novelists, um, mm-hmm. and that's something I certainly would agree with and, and would extend actually. So, um, so. But I think that the, oh, go, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say so. You know, even while in Bella's framework, literature as such, or like you know, if you can cordon off literature or the novel or you know, imaginative literature from something like governmental literature or occasional literature, such as sermons and this sort of thing. Um, it doesn't really appear in Bella's framework, but I think it's a short step to talking about it, especially if you look at you know, the implotment and, and how much it matches the, the contours of this conversation about great American novels and, and, mm-hmm. and American texts. This month's drink pairing is actually a cocktail, and it's a cocktail called the American Trilogy. As it was John's suggestion, I'll let him explain this aptly named drink. Um, and the American Trilogy is, um, it's one ounce of rye whiskey, an ounce of applejack, um, a, a sugar cube, a brown sugar cube, and then two dashes of orange bitters. And so you're supposed to use Laird's Applejack, which is an American product, a rye whiskey that's an American product, and then Regan's number six orange bitters. So those are the, the, the trilogy, those are the three American things. So. You can find a link to the recipe for American Trilogy at holymedia.com. And now it's time for... You're a nerd. A nerd. You're a nerd. So this episode's religion nerd moment is a pretty big one for me. As I edited this show, and actually at the time of its release, I am at my first AAR conference. And for those of you who don't know, uh, that's the American Academy of Religion. It's four days full of panels and workshops all about religion in various contexts. Basically, it's kind of my version of Comic-Con. If you want to follow updates about the conference, take a look at my personal Twitter account, which is at D-A-T underscore Campbell. I've been retweeting a few items on the Holy Media account, but not everything of interest. Uh, You could also actually search for the conference hashtag, which is uh, hashtag S-B-L-A-A-R-16. So thanks for listening to this episode, and I really hope you do come back again uh, in December, when actually I'm going to review some of the best moments from season one of Holy Media, and because it's December, uh, talk briefly about Christmas and consumer media. So thanks for listening, and have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to this episode of Holy Media. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode at holymedia.com. That's W-H-O-L-Y media.com. There you'll find links to articles John and I mentioned, 
such as the extensive PBS list of great American novels. How many have you read? Also, please leave a comment. It'd be great to get a conversation going on this fabulous topic, and I'm always looking for feedback. You can also start a conversation about this episode's topic on Twitter. The show Twitter handle is at Holy Media. And as always, you can find the show on SoundCloud, the iTunes podcast app, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoy Holy Media, I ask that you rate and comment about the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Those ratings actually help the show gain an audience and provide me with feedback about what I'm doing well and what I could improve on. If you do leave a comment, I'll make sure to thank you on the next show. And lastly, the first ever mini episode of Holy Media was released last week. For future mini episodes, I'd love to get you, the listener, engaged. To do this, I'm asking that you submit a question that you have about religion and media. To do this, I'm asking that you submit a question you have about religion and media. You can submit your questions either using the contact form on the website holymedia.com, sending your questions via Twitter to the handle at holymedia, or just using email and sending them to holymedia at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and have a great Thanksgiving. And this is Holy Media.